0: I'm talking about a research project that I'm working on with Andy Sterling at Sprue uh, in Sussex. Um, and it is a bit of a shift, actually, from my PhD. I'm learning quite a lot of new stuff doing this um, because it's looking at... Um, so, yeah, resilience building in, in civil society-based sort of innovative activities. Um, and I'm going to be uh, talking... Today, I'm sort of halfway through my field work, so this is a really sort of initial, this is an introduction for you about what I'm doing and then some really initial results. So any sort of feedback on how I might develop my thinking would be really helpful. So I'm going to introduce the subject of study, communal growing, and what I'm defining that as. Um, And then I'll talk to you about why I'm interested in looking at that using a resilience framework Um, And then I'll go through a couple of examples of how actors in the sector are trying to sort of sustain their activities, be resilient or develop resilience. Um, uh, And those two examples will be lands and planning, uh, or land access and planning, and then access to funding. So what's communal growing? Um, I'm defining this as community-led management of a piece of land for food growing. So that includes things like community gardens, which you see on the left. Um, there's an like, increasing movement actually, towards sort of, communal management of single allotment plots and development of, sort of community orchards and things like that. And on the far side is community-supported agriculture, which really varies in form, and I guess as I'm defining communal growing as an activity, it therefore applies to community-supported agriculture when it relies heavily on volunteers. People, community come together to grow food in a community-supported agriculture environment. Um, and community-supported agriculture specifically is a sort of relationship that you have with the grower, or a, pe- a group of people have with a grower. Whereby you pay up in advance for the food you're going to get, and you pay irrespective of the volumes of food you're going to get. So the idea is that you share much more. Um, You share the risk of production much more evenly with with farmers. In conventional food systems, it's very asymmetrical. The farmer takes all the risk. Um, So you get a really diverse set of drivers and reasons why people come onto pieces of land to grow communally. Um, this is things like um, community building, health and wellbeing, um, feelings that the conventional food system are, aren't uh, sustainable and you want to produce your food more sustainably. Um, yeah, educational purposes. All sorts of things drive sort of participation in community growing. Um, even actually, wildlife conservation, green space provision, etc. Um, I did look. I don't come from this particularly from a perspective of sort of new obesity or um, well-being in dietary well-being. But there is some. There's quite a lot of. There's quite a lot of evidence about gardening itself being obviously physically. Good for you and as a form of physical activity, I think in terms of um, there's some evidence that engagement in this sort of activity can change your nutritional intake, but I think the feeling is at the moment that that's not really well substantiated well enough substantiated um, so in the UK at the moment there's about well the Federation of city farms and community Gardens supports it thinks about thousand. Community gardens in the UK. Um, I saw a publication from 2009 that thought there were over 300 gardens at the time of writing. So, as you can see, there's been this really massive ballooning in activity really in the last couple of years. What's, what's the number now again? A thousand. Well, the Federation thinks a thousand, but actually, there's this initiative in London called Capital Growth where they said they. Two or three years ago, they said they were going to develop 2012 new growing spaces, community growing spaces, in London by 2012. Mm. So there's probably, I don't know how much overlap there is between that thousand and the new 2000, but it's basically a lot lot of activity is happening at the moment. Um, Community sports agriculture schemes, there's 80 active in the UK from a handful five years ago, and there's probably about 40 more in development. So these pieces of. Um, oh, yeah, let me. This is a really messy slide <laughs> showing you sort of my mapping of, of the sort of actors involved in the communal growing field. Um, you've got local actors, the schemes themselves, the gardens. Um, you've got then the sort of local intermediary organisations which directly support those gardens and schemes. For example, Harvest, Brighton and Hove, who I've spoken to. Um, Local authorities are really important. A lot of land is leased off local authorities, and they also own parkland and manage allotments and things. Um, Local schools and charities, primary care trusts and commissioning bodies are all getting more involved in the sector, as I'll talk about later. And then you've got things like local funders, national, big funders, who tend to then go through grant administering or intermediary bodies at a national scale to... De- devolve the funding, and then you've got national intermediaries as well, and I just wanted to show you that because it just highlights the really different actors involved, from wildlife trusts, through to people through about green space, through to learning and education charities, the Soil Association Garden Organic, and community composting and Federation of City Farms, and then Sustain is like a sustainable food production system actor, so basically there's lots of people in a very busy field (coughs) which is expanding quite rapidly Um, so they also, I just wanted to point out gardens and CSA schemes tend to rely very heavily on volunteers Um, so there's a lot of informal sort of activity that also goes on Um, so what am I, where am I starting from in this research? Well, I'm quite interested in thinking about resilience as an integrated concept as part of sustainability. Um, often, sustainability is thought of in the Brundtland way, you know, um, social, economic, and environmental sustainability, um, but it's not as often thought of in terms of the fact that. It needs to be sustained. Sustainable practices also need sustaining themselves if they're going to sort of have an influence and and be effective over time. So, um, and often sustainable activities, as I'm defining communal growing to be, um, operate in really uncertain environments. They might compete for land or the food they produce might compete with. Supermarkets or other retailers, um, yeah, they're often under-supported, under-recognised and, and, and operate in sort of difficult environments. So it's important to think about resilience and sustainability together. Um, and, you know, if you manage for resilience, you enhance the likelihood of sustaining desirable pathways for development in changing environments, as Carl Folke has said. Um also, but often resilience is talked about in quite a sort of abstract and apolitical way, whereas in reality, what you're wanting to sustain for what ends how are all quite political um, processes because people come to systems with very diverse ideas about why they value that activity or that system and what they want to, how they want to see it develop or what they want to see it develop too. So actually lots of people come to it with very different um, perspectives. So why is that interesting to explore? I thought civil society, or we thought civil society was an interesting way to look at it just because A, it's the site of a lot of sustainability experiments or innovations as I'm seeing communal growing as, but also collective action, well, this is um, the social movement's author, Collective action flourishes in contexts of interpretive ambiguity and <clears throat> contested meaning, and I think that really is what civil society is in many ways. It's really plural. And so the question is sort of how do, how do you make things resilient when everyone has different ideas about why they're coming to something? So the research questions that I'm going to be asking today are what the nature of pressures experienced by the communal growing sector. Are how actors in the sector seek to deal with these, and then asking whether attention to framings and agency helps to unpack the practices and politics of developing longevity in communal growing. So now I'm going to introduce you to the framework that I'm using to do this, and it's a bit—I uh, hope it's—it's it's clear. <laughs> um, so. One of the axes um, along which you can get divergent framings that we think are quite important when you're thinking about sort of resilience or sustaining something is how people see pressures on the activity itself, and you can see that say as either a shock or a stress, and they have um, very different dynamics, obviously, so um, you can see this, I'll use the example of food security if you're at all familiar with it, but you know, maybe 10 years ago when you had something like a food price spike or a sort of uh, famine or something like that, people might have used narratives of shock around that. They would have framed it as being it's a short-term blip in the system, something didn't work in that instance, but generally the food system will recover once... Those circumstances have changed, and that's a real shock framing. Whereas, you, as you'll see more recently, you've moved to real stress framing with food security in terms of people really seeing it as a systemic problem with the food system, the sort of perfect storm narrative around population, climate change, um, food, uh, environmental degradation of food production systems and all that sort of thing. So it's really moved to actually people seeing it as a systemic long-term change. And when you think about responding to those things, they actually require quite different ways of of dealing with something if you see it as a shock compared to a stress. Um, So then you can see those sort of things as shock stress along this axis. And then um, along the horizontal axis are two other sort of, uh, well, Its style of action or agency, as we're calling it, and that can be sort of either controlling or responding in relation to these pressures. And so, again, this relates to framing or the way that people think about their own ability to do things or portray their ability to do things for others. So, here you might get a control style of action, in which case it's where people think okay, the drivers of these changes are tractable, and I have the ability to do something about that, so I'm going to try and either do something about that or portray to others that I can do something about that and control the, um, the pressure. Whereas, and you might say that that might be taken by sort of actors who are more powerful or who might have particular capacities... And then on the far side, you've got response styles of action, which is where people sort of don't feel like they can have, where they feel the drivers are intractable, as in they're not changeable, they're not, um, yeah, they're not tangible. um, They don't have the power to try and deal with them. So you get these quite different um, styles of action. And again, I'd say that the consequences for a system of taking those different styles of action are quite different. Um, and that's what this framework sort of tries to show, which is that you get sort of, if you can control a shock, you sort of actually close down around the status quo. You want to keep things as they are. Um, similarly, you know, if you can close down around stresses, you might, if you try and control a stress, you also sort of generally try and keep the status quo, whereas the sort of response goal drivers mean a sort of shift and a change in the system, um, because you're you're reorientating yourself, um, rather than trying to control the pressure, you're moving yourself in different places so that the pressure becomes less of an issue for you. Um, So... The point here, yeah, is that you get quite different outcomes depending on whether you're trying to reposition yourself in relation to a short-term shock or a longer-term stress or you're trying to maintain the status quo. Um, So I'm trying to then use this framework in relation to all of this. (laughs) Um, And at the moment, I've been, so far, my fieldwork's involved really interviewing and some participant observation in gardens and community supported agriculture schemes, particularly in and around Brighton and hope, well in and around East Sussex, and then I've done some intermediary interviews at the local and the national level, and one interview with the grant administering body. But there are sort of in the, as my fieldwork develops, I hope to sort of interview across this whole um, range of, of actors. Um, so now I'm going to elaborate in um, two. I'm going to elaborate the kinds of ways in which community-led growing organisations have dealt with two really important sources of pressure on their operations. That's access <coughs> to land, um, and then the second is sort of sustaining financial resource flows to to their activities. So um, land's really crucial to groups, obviously you want to grow, um, but you. there are some sort of guerrilla gardens out there where people have gone onto a bit of land and they've not asked permission and, and they've tried to grow food on those spaces and to varying success, many of which get closed down once the landowner hears about it. But really if you're going to have any. If you're going to get funding at all for your growing space, you need to show that you've got a reasonable length of tenancy on that land. Um, and obviously I think if you want to really I think if you want to generate a really steady flow of volunteers, it's good to show that you've got security and that they're investing in something that's going to be there next year. Um, however, it's also land is also a very highly priced commodity, it's often at a real premium in urban areas. Um, its availability is affected by the broader economic climate and by building booms and crashes. And so, at the moment, what we're seeing while um, the recession has really created quite a few opportunities for land that's lying derelict, um, and the increasing interest in Grow Your Own has sort of sought to exploit this somewhat. So what you've so what you've got what I've found in my interviews so far is that land access is seen actually as both a shock and a stress. Where you see it as a shock is really when it's it's suddenly available it's more in that sense and you what groups and intermediary organizations have done have has sort of sought to capitalise on that shock and use those pieces of land, even though they're only temporarily available. And you've got um, intermediary organisations, supporting organisations have done quite a lot of work around meanwhile leases to try and sort of develop a legal framework in which people can go onto a piece of land. Landowners are happy for that to happen. So it's sort of an aligning... It's aligning... um, ..the... The view that's framing it as a shock is useful because landowners like it, they know it's only short term. Growing roots can go on there and it's it sort of works out alright. And the growing roots you've got really creative, sort of fun growing um pra- practices out of that. Um it, which there's some cool pictures of here. You've got these sort of builder's bag gardens really popular. And you can, there's big, big spaces just covered in building bags um, and filled with soil and growing stuff. And then there's also sort of the Skip Garden in Kings Cross, which is quite a famous one, which was involving lots of um, young people um, in its development and was there for three years, I think, um, on a vacant piece of land. So, um... However, obviously that's not really a sort of long-term development of longevity in the sector. So what you've also got is um, lots of intermediary groups have really mobilised on the groundswell of interest around communal growing and have sought... Uh, well, let me start again. They've re- they also recognise that land is always going to be a problem and if communal growing in any city is going to have a long-term... Uh, future, they need to make that land secure, and they need to make sure that it's valued in a way that's sort of um, robust to changes in, you know, land prices, governments, whatever. So you've got intermediary groups also sort of working to change planning advisory notices and strategic planning documents and city-wide strategies to get growing in there as an activity that people that. Is seen as important, and therefore, um, is sort of the mandate becomes the mandate of local government to see it happen. Um, right. Interestingly, though, the community-supported agriculture groups I've talked to, where <clears throat> you can arguably say their output really is more about food production, community gardens. It's about all sorts of things, and actually sometimes food isn't the primary output from a community garden at all. It's about well-being, community, you know, a social circle, um, skills and things like that. But what's happened with community-supported agriculture, um, organisations I've spoken to have issues with um, buildings for um, the workforce, because it's a very labour-intensive form of production often, because it's always they are always organic at least or biodynamic or permaculture organizations they require more staff to free per unit of land and yet getting permission to build housing for that um, workforce is really difficult and planning laws really tend to aggravate against doing that Um, and they've had much less success in trying to shift that Um, so there's I don't know. I I don't want to draw too much attention to it, but it might be sort of an interesting dynamic around the difference between urban, rural, food-based, or sort of open to really diverse framings. So the second um, pressure is funding. The second pressure I'm going to talk about is funding. Um, This was really seen mainly, actually, as a a stress by everyone spoken to. There's a lot of shifts at the moment that have meant this is really, well, that might have contributed to this sort of framing as a stress. Um, There have been two really large, or three actually, really large funding programmes in the last seven years. One was £60 million was £10 million, which have gone into supporting, amongst other things, a lot of community garden spaces. So there's been this sort of huge groundswell of, or huge amount of money flowing into the sector, lots of grants, lots of people sort of setting up on the back of grants or expanding on the back of grants and suddenly those are all coming to an end now and so groups are really having to think about how they're going to sustain themselves into the future without this grant funding. You've also got the financial crisis which means that a lot of local authorities have lost staff, a lot of NGOs have lost staff so a lot of the supportive function is sort of also seeping out of the system. Um, and you have generally, I think, got to move away from grants culture because there's a feeling that um, you can't always rely on the stop-start of grants and grants are very sort of focused on innovation and newness and you don't have support for your core costs, your ongoing um, activities. And so they're not really um, ideal in that sense. <clears throat> so you got... Um, so in, in terms of sudden changes in funding I found that some groups are sort of starting to charge for things they previously did for free. Um, <clears throat> they can't control actually no I wasn't going to start there, I'm going to start here. <laughs> previously with all this huge amount of funding that's been in the system a lot of intermediary organisations in, as as part of and um, the developing of these big funds recognised that to cut down paperwork to make grants sort of, sort of more locally relevant to make them more accessible to really small organizations they needed to be devolved, so that 's a sort of controlling what 's seen as a sort of always a stress for groups, which is where they 're going to get the money from so they have this administering of their own grant funding programs and that 's really cut down paperwork and I think empowered a lot of groups who've managed to get small funds through this means, but mainly funding is Think you know, uh, not the, the source of sort of changes in funding aren't really tractable to many of these organizations, and so you've found within this sort of new phase of less funding being around, groups are either charging for things they previously provided for free, which I think has created quite a lot of pressure on groups who might lose stakeholders who previously came because it was free, um, or you've also got. A big move now is from sort of is from grant funding into partnership forms of funding with local organisations. So you've got a huge number of groups trying to develop contracts with local schools and social services to help with um, kids who have struggled in mainstream education. Um, with primary care trusts and now the move to commissioning bodies I think people are seeing as quite a big shift and they're a bit concerned I think about whether they're going to still be seen as a sort of favourable place for people to um, spend their money um, but it's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting they definitely are sort of tr- trying to do it in a partnership sense though very reciprocal, not really in market not so much of arms length market relations but sort of trying to get some control over where their money comes from and who it comes from and sort of making those partnerships long term. Um, But that does put stresses on um, people. I think this is asking a huge amount of the skills in a group, the sort of management abilities of people, um, negotiation skills, also for volunteers who might go somewhere to sort of relax and have a good time suddenly there's a sort of different group of people in a place or they're relied upon to do actually quite skilled work and you do hear stories about like also about social services know that gardens are a free space so they've sort of told their clients maybe you you could go and check out this place but without really talking to the gardens themselves or thinking about the types of skills you might need to support that sort of group of people. So I think it is sort of really, it's, it's an interesting time. Um, so these are my really initial findings, and I appreciate that they're yet to be sort of developed in a sophisticated way, but um, I think there is a feeling within, I think, group, that group's might talk to each other in terms of learning how they deal with some of these pressures I've talked to or how they develop these skills. And actually, you don't find groups talking to each other that much. They're so busy with trying to run their garden, manage all the people who come to it, and they usually earn very, very little doing that, so they might have a job as well or whatever. So actually, you find there's a really highly interdependent relationship between grassroots gardens and the intermediary organisations that support them. Um, and in those intermediary organisations, that's where the learning takes place, that's where the sort of standing back and developing materials, supporting groups happens. Um, and importantly, though, they also, it is an interdependent relationship. I think a lot of intermediary organisations really draw on initiatives, sort of. The number and the support for and the popularity for growing spaces as a means to really engage in structural change, so you know engaging in planning systems, trying to change um, planning guidance notices, trying to um, develop um, sort of training programs for forum people who are managing garden spaces um, and, and also in things like, you know, how funding is, in, is administered and things like that. So what I'm sort of wondering about now, though, is how well local intermediaries are supported. A lot of, all, almost all the money in that 57 million went to grassroots groups, really, like, on the ground, grassroots groups. There are a few intermediary organisations funded through that, but very few. And so the question is, who's supporting all of these organisations that are suddenly springing up around the place? And you really need support for those. So you've got some intermediaries now thinking about hub and spoke models or trying to develop sort of supportive capacity in some of the more successful gardens. But again, that really needs money, training, all that stuff. Um, What's interesting seems to be that a lot of sort of structural, engagement with structural change, so sort of trying to say control stresses or can sort of make some drivers more tangible, it happens a lot at the city scale and that really relies on sort of really active, again, local intermediary organisations and local authorities that are amenable. I think there's a feeling that there's not really interest at the national level about this sort of activity. Um, but the problem is, then you get really—you know—you get really active areas of the country, and then you'll get places where gardens and growing spaces really struggle, despite the fact that I think they're a really important part of any city infrastructure. So, um, and also whether how this will work between—I <clears throat> think it's a, there's a feeling that community ownership of the space is really important for the longevity of that space. And yet, if you find that space is also becoming increasingly run like a business or has business elements of it in terms of selling services, it, I don't know how that will play out, but I think that's an interesting dynamic as well. Um, so, what, am I, what do I need to do now? Um, I think, at the moment, I feel a bit like I've, it's a bit snapshotty and I need to sort of develop... Sort of think about how this is developing notions of sort of capacity and properties in the sector as a whole, in groups as well, around sort of the practice of surviving and developing longevity. Um, I'm quite interested in sort of trying to unpick a bit more the sort of negotiation processes that are underpinning the developments in communal growing, sort of how trying to understand a bit better and I think that will come out of interviewing more widely at the national intermediary level because they're the ones that are sort of, I think they come from very different angles on the issue. Um, So, and then, yeah, I'm thinking a bit more carefully about the trade-off.